This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. A tiny fraction of criminal charges are resolved at trial. That has implications for the process of criminal justice. The Vanishing Trial is a film produced by Families Against Mandatory Minimums. I spoke with Kevin Ring of FAM about The Vanishing Trial and what they hope to accomplish by detailing what it means for defendants to never get their day in court. Yeah, The Vanishing Trial is a documentary we made last year because we wanted to bring attention to the fact that mandatory minimums are contributing to a system where less than 3% of people today, 3% of defendants, exercise their constitutional right to trial. So for people who aren't familiar with it, the trial penalty is the difference you get if you take a plea um, and cooperate with the government, the sentence you can get versus the sentence you'll get if you assert your constitutional right to trial and lose at that trial. Usually the difference is a matter of years and sometimes decades. And the problem with that is if you're threatened with 20, 30 years in prison, you're going to be more likely to give up your constitutional right to trial. And that's what we're seeing. And the reason that happens is because mandatory sentences allow the prosecutor to not only threaten you with a long sentence, but then to carry out that threat. Because if you get convicted of a crime that carries a mandatory sentence, the judge has no discretion. So this film, instead of just talking about it, we show you four instances where the trial penalty was applied and what that did to these people, their families, to justice, what the result was. And in those stories, you see how unfair it is. So when uh, criminal defense lawyers are facing this problem, obviously, they sort of build all of this into their expectations when they're uh, representing a client. Um, you know, to, the, to the extent I've spoken with criminal defense lawyers, they are in an almost impossible spot where they say, yeah, we could probably uh, show your innocence at trial, but the dis- disparity between what a prosecutor might be offering if you don't go to trial and what you would necessarily be convicted of if we take this to trial is just such a wide gulf that, uh, uh, at least in, in my conversations, criminal defense attorneys say, look, just take the deal. That's 100% right. I think most Criminal defense lawyers see their job as just securing the best deal. They might as well just be negotiators. They don't have to worry about trial because they very rarely go to trial. And, you know, I don't think people realize that. I think if you watch Law & Order, you see every case starts with an arrest and then a prosecution and then a trial at the end of the episode. That doesn't happen. And so defense lawyers, I think from the get-go are thinking, how do I get you out of this without a trial? Because not only do you run the risk of the longer sentence, the cost, the financial cost of going to trial is prohibitive for most people. I note that you've worked with Travis Edwards on this film, who's uh, your, your cinematographer. I've uh, appeared in some films that uh, Travis Edwards has uh, worked on as well um, and uh, would commend to anybody to, to see this film and other work by Travis Edwards as well. But um, tell me about how you guys had to get into uh, you know, the criminal justice system in order to shoot a lot of this stuff, because uh, at least at the federal level, it's very difficult to uh, talk to prisoners. Yeah, that 
was not possible for the people who were charged federally. So for instance, Chris Young, we weren't able to, we've been emailing him, but we weren't able to get in and film him. And we were able with Eric Wyant, who was in the state prison, to do a phone call. But really, Travis and Wynette Yao, who was the producer, did an incredible job of putting this together through recreations, through uh, just actors that were hired. It was pretty amazing. We had these four compelling stories, but to show them in a way that you know made it you know easier for the viewer to follow along and understand what was going on, they just had to be very creative and imaginative with how they portrayed these stories. And so they did, but you're right. Prisons are black boxes. You can't get into them. We couldn't interview Chris, for instance. And um, so we just had to do it through lawyers and family members speaking about, you know, their contact with them. FAM is, or once was, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. And this vanishing trial is in part, and and maybe you can uh, flesh this out a little bit, to what extent is the vanishing trial a consequence of mandatory minimums? Is it all of it or is it just some of it? No, it's not all of it. In fact, my case, which is part of the film, I wasn't subject to a mandatory minimum, but I was still threatened with 20 years under the guidelines. And, you know, it's not a comfortable feeling to accept that threat and to, you know, most people wouldn't even realize that maybe the judge is going to have discretion not have to give you that sentence. So you don't need a mandatory sentence. You just need the coercion that comes with the prosecutor threatening you with a long sentence. Uh, the mandatory sentence is what allows them to carry it out. Mandatory minimums are a big part of it. Also, just the nature of plea bargaining, the fact that it's so private, um, kept away from the public, not a lot of scrutiny, judges aren't involved. So they sometimes will accept a plea from a, you know, a, like a kingpin. And then later, an underling will go to trial and you know, they've already accepted a plea for a short term for the kingpin, and now they've got this younger person or this smaller person in the chain, and they've got to hammer them with a long sentence. So judges have a role to play. Prosecutors could have a role to play, which is to stop seeking trial penalties, to stop seeking longer sentences just because somebody didn't plead and cooperate. Um, mandatories are a big part of it because that's the stick that prosecutors have. But there's other pieces of it that come into play. So what does it mean if we don't have trials? Uh, what does it mean if if most people who are accused of crimes never get their day in court, which is how I understand the trial uh, to function? Yeah, no, that's a great question because we focus a lot as a sentencing organization on the unfairness of the sentence. But not having trials is a huge problem because it allows the law to develop in different ways. You can have prosecutors start... Um, using a law in a way that it wasn't intended. But if nobody challenges it, that case law, that body of law builds up. And a perfect example is honest services fraud. That's what I was charged with and others were charged with. But it wasn't until Jeff Skilling and Conrad Black challenged it and the law was narrowed by the Supreme Court. And then Governor Bob McDonnell in Virginia challenged it and the law was narrowed further. If people don't go to trial, the law develops in whatever way the prosecutors want. And that usually means more expansively. We've talked about your case before, and I, I know of the comments on honest services fraud. Uh, Antonin Scalia, who you studied extensively, uh, had a comment on it, which is basically, you tell your boss you're sick, you go to a baseball game, that's honest services fraud. 
Yeah. The, pro- the problem with a statute that broad is it can mean anything. Already, people know that mail and wire fraud can be used to make any case a federal case. Honest services fraud just means you're depriving somebody of their honest services. Well, that could be a dry cleaner who charges women more for a blouse than they do for a shirt. Or if you go to a ball game and the, the vendor's charging you $10 for a soda, you can get $5 outside. Why isn't that honest services fraud? I know that product is cheaper. There, it is the most elastic law that could be used. And, you know, in, in the case of lobbying, it was used against what people thought was lobbying activity, traditional lobbying activity. And the danger for all Americans is that you want a bright line between criminal activity and non-criminal activity. You don't want to think I'm in a gray area where I could be charged at any time for doing something that is industry norm. And so, you know, that's that that's the real danger of not cabining in prosecutors and how they use what are pretty vague open-ended laws. When I, uh, I've, I've spoken about this topic with Clark Neely of the Cato Institute, um, and one of the sort of maybe underappreciated side effects of, uh, not of having so few trials is that so few people are called for jury duty. Uh, and people complain about jury duty, but if they actually had to see uh, and confront directly the uh, charges that people are given uh, when uh, they take their uh, case to trial, they might be saying to themselves, why are you wasting my time with this case? Why is this case even before the court? Why aren't you just either tolerating this uh, small-time behavior or finding a way to, uh, to, to punish these crimes in a way that is far less substantial than what is being threatened. That's exactly right. First of all, Clark is, I would say, the national expert on this issue. He has put so much time and energy into it, and people should listen to what he has to say about the disappearance of trials and what that means and how it's distorted our system. And to the point about the jury, I think that's right. There's two things. One is the substance of the charges. I was I had some comfort in the fact that after my trials, jurors told the press, we don't even know why they charged this. You know, we don't even know why this was a federal case and they tried me twice. So that was a a moral victory to, to hear people say that. The second part goes to punishment. And prosecutors, when they lobby for mandatory minimums, always say the public demands these punishments. They want these long sentences. And yet the jury is not even allowed to know what sentence the defendant is facing. And so we have said, you know, let the jury be fully informed of the prospect of this person serving a mandatory sentence if they're convicted. And the prosecutors will object to that. They don't want that. And yet these are the 12 people who know more than anybody else what this case is about, whether that is an appropriate punishment. The prosecutors don't want them to know. And I think that's really telling because it goes to your point about, you know, if people sat on a jury and saw the actual conduct, and then the punishments that applied to it, they might reject it. And so we keep them in the dark instead. Why shouldn't jurors understand what the deal was that was offered by prosecutors? Is, is that a good idea? I don't know if the jury should know that. The judge should know that. I mean, when the judge goes to sentence the person, they should be allowed to know what the prosecutor offered in terms of a deal so they can figure out whether that sentence then is appropriate. Because at that point, when the deal is offered, the prosecutor is saying, this is the amount of time I think that the public could get its pound of flesh for this person's crime. 
right? I think public safety would be protected if this person served this amount of time. But then to go to a trial and secure a sentence that's four or five times that is is an admission that that extra time is not necessary to protect public safety. It is totally punitive. And so whether the jury knows that or the judge knows that, somebody else should know that so they can see how great a gap that is between what was offered and what was you know the result. A lot of people are represented by public defenders. Public defenders probably uh, don't want to go to trial um, in, in a lot of cases because uh, they are already, as we know, stretched thin. Uh, prosecutors have the option of dismissing cases they d- they don't want to take on that would not be a particularly attractive scalp uh, for their wall, um, and, and they are able to balance resources in a way that uh, public defenders in many cases are really not able to do. How does that change things with change the calculus with respect to trials? Well, I think public defenders are doing triage. And as you said, they have high caseloads and they're just trying to resolve them. And also keep in mind that they'll have a defendant without means in a lot of cases and sometimes not a lot of education. And so trying to figure out the choices that they have to make are difficult. Um, also, you don't have access to discovery. So you don't, you're hearing the prosecutor's side, you talk to your client, and they have to make a judgment, usually in short order. They don't have the, time or the resources always to explore whether the defendant has an alibi or there's some other mitigating circumstance. They can't explore the case and they don't get that discovery. The government doesn't turn over that information at that stage. So they really are, um, you know, the deck stacked against them and they're just trying to make decisions as quickly as possible. I don't think public defenders fear going to trial. I think they're uh, tenacious, but I think when they're thinking about the best interests of their client, they look at the risk they run of going to trial, and a lot of times they recommend plea. Collective Eye Films is distributing it, and if people want to host a screening uh, of this short, powerful film, uh, they can definitely do so. How would you recommend people do that? Yeah, they should go to Collective Eye's website where they can find The Vanishing Trial and request the um, film. If they are at a college or university, there's licenses that can um, be procured. You can also reach out to FAM um, because the film will soon be on Canopy, so people will be able to just get it themselves if they register at Canopy. And we're encouraging people to share it with friends, neighbors, have screenings, um, invite us to participate. If you get a group together to talk about the policy consequences of this. Um, But we're just trying to get as many eyeballs on it. This is about educating people that there's a problem, not so much about the solutions right now, but just recognizing that what they've seen on TV about how law and order works is not exactly how it works in practice. Kevin Ring is president of FAM. We spoke last week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 